This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Wow, welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining me here. Another episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio. Now, to start off the show, I really want to thank my Patreon supporters, as I always do, that uh, really help me out on the show. If you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can go to patreon.com forward slash AHP if you want to get all podcasts in advance of what we do. The reason I wanted to go a little bit more in depth about my Patreon supporters is because I know these days, guys, jobs are very hard to come by. Good paying jobs are very hard to come by. And for what little money people do have, a lot of my Patreon supporters, they could be out buying guns, they could be buying ammunition, they could be buying hunting equipment, but they choose to spend it here supporting me at AHP, and I do really appreciate that. On my top tier, I want to thank Andrew T and Chris M. And Matt, these guys are on my top tier, and uh, I'm just looking at their lifetime p- payments now. Uh, one of them is almost at $1,000. He supported me here on the show. Uh, so I want to thank both those guys it's just, I just can't believe in a way that people are enjoying it so much. They're willing to spend that sort of money to support me. So I want to thank you very much, uh, Andrew and Chris. Going on from my Patreon supporters, a lot of them have been with me for quite a long time. And uh, I want to do a bit of a shout out to my Patreon supporters. I think it was long overdue. So uh, we just had a new patron come on the other day, Lachlan. And we've got Ben, Jeff, Hans, Maddie, Corey, Mickey, Bongo, Andy, Thomas, and one of my very, very long-term supporters, Brad, who's been with me pretty much right since the beginning. So I want to thank you guys very much. Going on from that, also, I've got Andrew, Duncan, Sean, Chris, Peter, Shane, Paul, Matt O, Matt B. I seem to have a lot of mats for some reason. I think I've got about four or five mats, which is, geez, guys must be a very, very popular name. I've got Sean, Brenton, Brad, another Matt, Aaron, Frank, Andrew, Cameron, Brendan, Julian, Glenn, another Cameron, Marty, Justin, Philip, and going on the bottom, Luke, Joey, Mike, Gavin, and also my another long-term supporter of mine, Michael, uh, who's helped me out fantastically uh, on the Facebook page over the years. So thanks, Michael, very, very much for that. You guys make the world go around for me. You've been able to buy me new equipment, which you've seen just recently. And to give back to Patreon supporters, probably when you listen to this show, I'm not sure if it's going to happen. It's definitely going to happen, but when it's going to happen, uh, we either would have given away by the time this podcast goes live or close to a Southern Cross Small Arms chassis to one of my awesome Patreon supporters. As a bit of a thank you, uh, it's going to be drawn out of a hat. So I'll let you guys know throughout the time on Facebook uh, and on Patreon when that actually decides to go live and give away that Southern Cross Small Arms chassis. That's just one of the benefits of being a Patreon supporter, of course, getting all shows well in advance of the general listenership. And I also wanted to thank Southern Cross Small Arms for providing the chassis to the show. We're going to be running some ads for them very soon, which is absolutely fantastic. And, uh, you know, whoever wins the chassis, Congratulations, you're getting an absolutely fantastic Australian-made product. On today's show, we're actually going to be talking about Long Range Shooter 260 Rips, a.k.a. Mark Ripley. Now, if you haven't heard about Mark, you can jump on YouTube and just type in 260, 260 space Rips, R-I-P-S. Now, I'm going to ask him on the show because I've always wondered whether 260 Rips, as in 
because uh, when he does the intro, it's got R-I-P-S, like rest in pieces, I think it means. But it also could mean Ripley, because his name is Mark Ripley. Uh, awesome shooter, awesome content. I think around 30,000, close to 30,000 subscribers on YouTube. Very, very good content, guys. You'll learn a lot of things about reloading. Uh, he tells you a lot about gear and equipment that he uses. And just shooting rabbits, foxes at crazy distances it's just it absolutely blows my mind and when i was actually searching about uh wanting to buy a 260 as most of you guys know you just jump on the internet you jump on youtube is normally where you jump first and i found mark and i found air arms hunting south africa who both shoot 260 remington wasn't sure what type of 6.5 i was going to get at the time whether it was a 260 whether i was going to get a 6.5 creedmoor but uh, after seeing what these guys were doing with this caliber it pretty much just sold me uh, on it on the 260 Remington. Um, I was probably going to go the 6.5 Creedmoor at one stage. I had an interest in the 260, but of course, it's not really until you see what it can do and you jump on YouTube and other types of social media that you see the quality that the 6.5 cartridges can offer long-range shooters and long-range hunters. So today we're going to talk about everything about equipment, we're going to talk about scopes, we're going to talk about bipods, we're going to talk about reloading, we're going to talk about ammunition, projectiles, factory ammunition, you name it, pretty much we're going to talk about it. And I noticed a lot of people have been contacting me and saying they've really been enjoying uh, hearing from people from overseas. Yes, I know it's called the Australian Hunting Podcast, but you know what we have in common is pretty much universal. We all love hunting, we all love shooting, and you know, it's not so much different from Australia than it is to other parts of the world. Sure, there's different game that you can hunt, there's different things that you can do, some different you know, ranges you can go to, different competitions, but all in all, we love our firearms, we love our hunting, and we love our shooting, and uh, I love actually myself talking to different people from around the world and getting their perspective on what it means to be a hunter, shooter, uh, and, and, and fishermen even it depends on what they're into but today we're going to talk to mark ripley so i'm going to bring him onto the show mark ripley welcome to ahp thanks for uh, joining me here on the show to have a chat about everything hunting uh shooting long range shooting we're going to have a great conversation so i'm glad you accepted my invite and uh decided to come on the show thank you very much for that oh thank you for the invite I want to find out first off, who's Mark Ripley? What does he like to do? Tell us, I guess, where you're from, what you like to do. Just give us a bit of a general all-round background about yourself. Well, where do we start? Right. Well, I'm, I'm knocking on. I'm in my mid-40s now, so I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm from um, south of England. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, um, I'm in the building trade. That's my main, um, main job, but uh, I also do um, also write for a couple of shooting magazines, um, I've got a YouTube channel, um, and yeah, I'm basically just into all kind of anything to do with um, hunting and shooting is 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 my thing. Uh, particularly like long range shooting and um, mainly foxing. That's my uh, my number one kind of passion, if you like. Good, interesting question. How did you, when you were growing up, I assume? I mean, were your parents into hunting? How did you get into shooting? Your family members in it, brothers, sisters, or how did you just get into the you know, the sport all round? Yeah, it was uh, my dad's to blame for that one. Um, he was a uh, <laughs> well, he was he was into shooting um, as a kid as well, um, mainly just with an air rifle. But you know, typical boy stuff. He'd sort of have a bow and arrow and blow guns and all kind of stuff like that. Anything that goes bang or can shoot something, he was interested in. Um, 
so I kind of followed in his footsteps, and uh, I think it just started an old um, BSA Meteor air rifle sat in the uh, in the garage with an old um, four or fifteen scope on it, battered old thing, and um, one day uh, he dug that out of the garage, and I remember watching him and he shot a uh, starling out of the uh, cherry tree from the garage and that was it I was hooked from then on it it, seemed, uh, <laughs> it seemed awesome as, uh, well, I was probably about 10 at the time maybe a bit younger and um, so yeah I think that that's what set the seed and um, probably if he had known that I expect he probably would have left the rifle where it was at the time and <laughs> not, not set me on this path but yeah Imagine all the greenies over there saying, oh, you're shooting starlings and all these types of things going absolutely crazy about our hunting activities. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, at the time, they were on the um, on our uh, pest sort of species list, starlings. Um, they've been taken off now, I believe. So, uh, but, um, yeah, at one point then, they were uh, number one pest. And to be honest, in, in sort of, what, 30-odd years ago, you could get away with things like that, and no one sort of battered an eyelid. It was quite quite a normal I think in fact my mum and my dad used to uh, not shoot the neighbours washing off of their line shoot the pegs <laughs> for the washing drops off the line things like that you know and uh, that was all kind of just the sort of things that people got up to for a bit of fun but <laughs> times have changed a lot since then I know it's interesting let's talk about that first too because that's really good tell us about like what was it like say you know 15 25 years ago when you were just a young young whippersnapper starting in the you know hunting and shooting sports to how it's relatively changed today not just from a, a law perspective but just the a hunting perspective as well um everything was a lot more laid back um you know they, they were sort of I mean, I'm going back to when I first started shooting with an air rifle a lot, and um, <clears throat> it was just a case of there was all sorts of air gun clubs that you could regularly go to. Um, you could you could walk down the street with your rifle and a slip, and no one would sort of bat an eyelid at that. Um, and we used to go out. We used to go up onto the hills and stuff. Uh, with, I mean, to be honest, a lot of it was just sort of public ground that, and uh, it, you could just go and and shoot rabbits and things, you would go with a little mag light or something, tape around the end of your barrel of your air rifle and you know, break barrel air rifle and uh, go and try and try and knock a rabbit off here and there. And uh but yeah, it was it was very much very much different to what it is now. Yeah, absolutely. Same as Australia too. I mean, my grandfather used to, you know, go on the train up to Lithgow, just over the top of the mountains in Western Sydney, and used to take his Lithgow firearm with him, you know, over his shoulder on the train. Yeah. Nobody blinked an eyelid. But if you did that in no. t- today's day and age, you'd um, you'd have the SWAT team in a helicopter above you, trying to <laughs> trying to well, find out what's enough, going I've, on. I've had that kind of stuff more recently. <laughs> oh, really? Any stories to share? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I did. Um, I had um, a little bit of ground that was right next to a sort of a, a fairly sort of busy road, um, and the farmer wants us to just, just knock a few rabbits over off of uh, this little bit of ground with an air rifle. And um, I was sat sort of uh, with my back to the road up against a hedge, um, and I suppose I could probably, maybe from the road, you could, if you really looked hard, you could probably could have seen me silhouetted in amongst the hedge. Well, um, I was sat there knocking over one or two rabbits with the air rifle, and then um, I saw a helicopter sort of coming in live over me, and I recognised it as being a police helicopter. And I, I just knew straight away that's for me. And, um, <laughs> oh, sure wow. enough, then there's a, yeah, then there's a couple of squad cars sort of pull up at the gateway of the, um, of the field, and uh, there's a guy walking down in blue overalls with a with a German shepherd down the hedgerow. I thought, oh no! <laughs> and, and all, all this for me, really all right. this for me. <laughs> all, all this, yeah, yeah. Well, honoured. <laughs> and 
then the helicopter comes in really low and the guy says, um, lay the rifle on the floor and step away. And we had all that and they all came over and uh, and it turned out absolutely fine. You know, the, the guys were really good, but um, it was obviously just someone driving past, probably knew full well what I was doing, but out of um, out of spite probably just uh, decided to, to phone the police and have them attend. Wow, I'm sure that would have been uh, yeah. very interesting. Well, it was it was interesting that they were answering a um, an armed response, and yet none of the police that arrived were armed either. So <laughs> I, I think he sort of uh, they obviously realised what was going on, but um, yeah, especially when they bring in the chopper as well. You know, they that's when they mean business when they start bringing in the chopper. <laughs> yeah, and that's costing some taxpayers some money too. Yeah, so. unbelievable. Um, yeah, I know. Getting into my next question, I wanted to talk about. I mean, what is shooting and hunting like uh, in the UK at the moment? Is it uh, thriving? Is there good opportunities to be able to to hunt? As far as I'm aware, you can't hunt on pub, uh, on public land. It's all private land hunting. And you talk about hunting in the UK. Yeah, um, right. Well, I think from what I read in the in the sporting press and that the. Um, the licenses are on an increase, so which is good because it means more and more people are getting into the sport. Um, but to be honest, the sport as a whole, particularly in the hunting side of it, is getting more and more sort of under pressure. There's more and more um, kind of things being being banned or ruled out. Um, I mean, we just had um, one of the one of the big shows that uh, we go to, a British shooting show, um, which is held uh, each year uh, in February. Um, it's held up at the NEC in Birmingham. And um, we just, uh, last year, um, the anti's kind of put pressure on the, on the companies that are attending um, because one of the, one or two of them were uh, safari kind of hunts and that. And they put those under pressure to, um, to, to pull out from the show or they basically said that uh, um, they, you know, they, they put all this pressure on. And in the end, the NEC just said, well, anything to do with safari, hunting um can't can't attend the show any of these stands like we can't have them uh otherwise you know that'll just be the end of the show so yeah that's the sort of thing that we're having to deal with more and more different little aspects of the sport is getting under pressure be it um we just had a big thing um with uh, i don't know if you know this chris packham guy yeah yeah um, i do yeah yeah well we just had a lot of sort of grief from this guy where um he banned the general licenses. The general license is, is something that we shoot all our um, vermin species under. It's uh, it's just a license that um, is issued um, that you don't physically have to have a license. It's just a kind of a, a broad sort of thing that we all shoot under these conditions. Well, anyway, he managed to um, to, to sort of get this get this withdrawn and uh, yeah it, it, long story but um, it caused us all a lot of grief and it basically meant that for a couple of months until these re- these licenses were uh, reworded no one could shoot any pest species so we had uh, wood pigeons and that sort of decimating crops and uh, all through the spring we had magpies and crows and stuff that were just uh, killing songbirds and that and um, uh, in the lambing season all through lambing season you've got crows and you've got magpies attacking newborn lambs and stuff and no one could do anything about it. So that's that's the kind of thing that we're facing at the moment. There's a lot of pressure from different kind of small aspects of one sport. 
Yeah, I remember when I was reading about Chris Packham and that general license and people were struggling to be able to, you know, shoot pigeons on their property and stuff like that. And um, thankfully they were able to reword it. Is there a, for the general license, is there a fee that you have to pay for the license? Like one year license, two, three, ten year license? What exactly is it? No, no, no. It's um, it's it's literally just something that I think it's uh, now issued by DEFRA. Um, but what it is is it's um, it, it's just kind of um, legislation, if you like. So it's completely there's no charge. It's completely free. It isn't actually like a physical license. Right, All okay. it is is just set out conditions that we will have to apply. You know. Uh, 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 you know, go along with. Yeah, that's all right. Very you interesting. Know. It's in, we got. I guess we've got similar sort of legislation here, but depends on where we hunt. You know, to what license we've got to have. Like some states over here in Australia have public land hunting, while other states in the country pretty much directly. It's a direct no that we can't hunt on public land. So it depends on which state you're in. Some of them it's. Yeah, private land only. Other parts of the country, it's, you know, you can hunt on private land and public land under a license. Normally, there's a small fee if you hunt on public land, but that's to be expected, as you would expect, um, you know, getting access to millions of acres worth of public land for, you know, rabbit hunting, deer hunting, you know, some forests are better than others, of course, but that's our state crown land, our state forest, but still a very, very good thing. But mate, I was going to ask you a question. Do you hunt or obviously you hunt, but do you partake in any other sort of shooting activities, you know, shotguns, clay targets, or do you go to the range to sort of, you know, shoot, you know, paper or anything like that, or you're mainly just a hunter? Um, Well, to be honest, a lot of it's sort of kind of time uh, for me. I'm self-employed, so it's sort of trying to work stuff around, plus having a family and everything else. Um, I do like to do uh, a bit of steel target shooting over here. That's sort of a growing kind of um, sport, if you like. Um, you can go to there's a couple of different ranges here where they have uh, steel, um, you know, steel gongs and stuff that you can shoot at, and you can shoot out to long range and that on those, which is great practice. Um, so I quite like doing that. Um, I do a, a little bit of um, clay shooting once in a while if I get the time. Um, but mainly, mainly I'm just sort of um, hunting. So I'm normally out. Ninety-nine percent of my spare time will be taken up uh, either fox shooting or deer stalking. Um, but um, yeah, occasionally if, they, if sort of if I see a field that's getting hammered with pigeons or crows, then um, I might get out with a shotgun and set up a hide and. Um, a bit of that. We also do um, uh, a bit of uh, foxing as well with a shotgun. That's quite another sort of popular um, thing here. Uh, we, a friend of mine's got a couple of terriers, so we go out with those, and push a bit of cover in that, and um, just you know walk it with a with a couple of shotguns. Yeah, absolutely. I there's one thing when I'm always watching over there. I think you've got Field Sports Britain and a few other those, uh, yep. you know, YouTube uh, channels, and it's just crazy the amount of pigeons you got. I love that. I wish we had that over here. Pigeon shooting with shotguns, man. I would just be in total oh. heaven if I had that. That's it's got to be one of the best sports. <laughs> I think um, I, for shotgun shooting, either pigeons or crows. Um, either of those crows are good too. If you get somewhere. Where you've got a lot of them. I mean, one of the well, there's a couple of farms I shoot, which are uh, dairy farms, um, so they're forever plagued with crows, and um, that's great because you can you can set up a good hide. You need to be well hidden with crows because they don't miss a thing. Um, and the best thing to do is to shoot a few crows. Once you've got a few, keep pegging them out. I normally just use some, um, I guess, some little metal spikes, sort of like um, like bicycle spokes, that kind of thing, that like a stiff wire. If you get something like that and then you push it up under the jaw of the, of the dead crow, up into the skull sort of thing, and then you can prop them up, 
Um, so we normally sort of do that and shoot maybe six or seven or something, then prop them out. And then the, the crows will just keep coming in more and more confidently. And then the more you shoot and the more you peg out, the more confidently they come in. And I've had sort of days where I could I could probably go tomorrow uh, to one of these dairy farms and I would have thought probably within the morning I could probably have shot 100 crows. Yeah. So, so <laughs> jealous. The sort of numbers we get. So jealous, yeah, pigeons are... <laughs> pigeon shooting is much the same with a certain times a year you get the right sort of fields uh, and you get under a flight line put some decoys out it's one of those sports sometimes you might you might shoot 10 <laughs> and other days you might shoot 100 or, or plus you know there's people sort of um, that do it uh, they've got some good good um, fields of crops and stuff that are doing it quite regularly and they could probably shoot 300 maybe more in a day so um, we certainly do have an awful lot of pigeons and uh, and crows in that area. All right, guys, we're just going to go to a quick break and we'll be back with Mark Ripley. Renowned for their strength, reliability and attention to detail, Moroku shotguns are the perfect example of what a sporting shotgun should be. Moroku have been producing quality products for over a century and sold in Australia since 1963. Each Moroku shotgun is crafted with precision, from the MK Trap and sporting models to the all-round best-selling field shotgun, the MK70. Visit morokushotguns.com.au for more details and stockists. Mark, I wanted to talk about pest control. Do you do it for a business at all? Do you get paid, or is it more just you helping out farmers and locals from around the area? Uh, it's a bit of both, to be honest. Um mainly for the foxing um, as I say that's sort of like the number one thing that I do um, I've got uh, I do um, a golf course I do a little local zoo for me um, which they, they sort of um, well to be honest it started off I was doing a paid thing for them but they ended up they had so many foxes coming onto their ground that um, I ended up just waving the fee and just just kind of do it for um, membership to the zoo and things like that it's great for the grandchildren that they love it so um, that works quite well. But um, my cousin's a, a sheep farmer um, over here, and um, he has oh, probably, I would think he must raise somewhere in the, ra- in the realms of about 5,000 lambs a year. So he's one of the biggest sheep farmers in the area. And um, he keeps us busy throughout the uh, lambing season. That's when we have the biggest problem with foxes and that. They're coming and taking the lambs. Um, a lot of the uh, the lambs are sort of although they're um, born um, in the barn normally they normally some of them some it depends on the farm some farms they'll lamb in the barn others they'll lamb just out on the open hills and of course the foxes will just come straight in and uh, help themselves to the youngsters it starts off I think they get the smell of the afterbirth and stuff in the fields that draws them in uh, and then once they're in the area then the next step is there's a newborn lamb just still covered in afterbirth and that and bang it's gone I must admit, I, I was watching that. one of your videos where I think it—I think it was maybe one of the recent ones where the <laughs> the sheep was on its back and it couldn't turn itself over, and you you sort of walked yeah. over there and just got him back on his feet. It's crazy that the the sheep—I didn't know that. I'm not sure if that's all sheep, you know, universally. I didn't know if they fell onto their back. Yeah, they sort of can't get back over and roll over onto their onto their you know legs to get back up. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, that's quite a common thing. I think what tends to happen is is that they'll. Um, They'll either um, lay down or they'll go over or whatever. I think normally what it is is they probably eat, they lay down and then the gases in their stomach starts to swell and that's what causes them trouble, stops them being able to get up. I think it's like a colic type thing. 
Um, so yeah, they <laughs> wow. kind of puff up. <laughs> yeah, they puff right up, and literally they go like a balloon. And then of course they can't stand. Um, but if you can flip them over, once they're up on their feet, then they're fine. Or the other thing is they'll tend to get they push themselves into bramble bushes and stuff, and they'll get absolutely tangled. All the brambles get tangled in their fur, and they can't move. Um, and then if they're not found, they'll just die there. Uh, and of course, some magpies and crows, they'll be on, even before they're dead, they'll be on there pecking the eyes out of them and things like that. And of course, the foxes as well, if they get half a chance um, on a sheep, we've seen it before, a sheep's gone down and um, it, it can't move, it's still alive. And we've had foxes coming in at night and, and just eating them while they're still alive. You know, it's terrible. You can imagine that's not a good way to go, is it? When you're on your back as a sheep and, you know, the, the crows come and try and peck your eyes out or the fox is coming in trying to have a have a nibble on you while you're on your back, it's, it wouldn't be a good death, would that's it? Not, not ideal, no, <laughs> no, it's not nice at all. Yeah, and we, we do have an awful lot of foxes over here. I don't know what, well, I know you guys obviously have a lot where you are. I've seen some of the videos on YouTube and stuff where you're shooting over there and you get some pretty pretty big numbers in that. Um but we get them as well, and uh, we get a lot of what, what we term urban foxes, where in the towns and stuff, we get a lot of foxes coming in all around the houses and things and going through bins. And, uh, the trouble is people feed them, and then that just pulls them in. And a lot of the ground that I shoot, we've got farms that are kind of in amongst, I say in amongst houses, a lot, that, you know, it's a very built-up country, so um, we've got a lot of houses and farms and stuff kind of bordering one another. So if you've got a housing estate boarding onto a um, farmland, then of course it's the, the farm is just plagued with foxes. I, no, I noticed on a couple of your videos too, and, and maybe you might be able to tell me um, if you use a, a whistle. Like we've got a thing over here called a, a Tenterfield whistle, which was made up by somebody yeah. that replicates a rabbit. But I noticed on a lot of your videos and. Uh, it's interesting that you do a lot of sitting and waiting. And I went on a trip probably only just last week before we actually did this show. I was telling you about it. And we, uh, a lot of sitting and waiting generally for deer works and stuff like that. But generally sitting and waiting for foxes is a lot of us don't really do that over here. We more get on the whistle or we use one of those Fox yep. Pro game callers. But on this yep. trip, I, I, was, both of those, yeah. I was on this, uh, tr- uh, sitting over this area of just this property that I went to about a week ago and uh, probably about 300 metres wide, 300 metres long that I could actually see before it became built up. And it's interesting what you see in a couple of hours because normally I'd be on the yeah. whistle trying to call a fox or whatever it might be. And But I'd noticed when I was waiting for deer, uh, about three or four foxes came over my path about probably yeah. every 45 minutes, every hour, and I just saw them about 300 metres away. You can see them hunting. It was a really, really good experience to sort of watch them hunt, actually. And, and what was quite interesting was I, I'd shot a fox probably a day earlier, and <laughs> you, you're going to laugh at this. It's quite funny. The, the fox came down and was sniffing out the other dead fox. Then it stood literally... I think I've got some a, a photo of it. I might send you. It stood on top of the dead fox, and I'm thinking, I'm looking in my binoculars, probably about 125 meters away, and I'm thinking, is it going to have like a bit of a chew on the dead fox? What's it going to do? Anyway, it it, it lost interest. It went to under this tree which had fallen down and it decided to have a nap and I thought uh, if there's no deer here in say the next 45 minutes maybe hour <laughs> I, I might even have a shot at him so he went to sleep underneath the tree in this fallen tree anyway about an hour goes by I look down with the binoculars he's still there and I thought you know what I'm going to do I'm going to get the whistle out because it's really loud and I'm going to start calling him anyway so I got the whistle out started whistling 
He was not interested at all. He didn't even wake up. And I'm thinking, if you know the Tenterfield fox whistle, it is really loud. You can you can hear it from kilometres away. Anyway, I'm whistling. I'm blowing as hard as I can. Absolutely nothing. Anyway, I decide to um, have a shot at him. I take him at about 125 metres, but I missed the first shot because it was quite a steep angle. Um, and I only had my 308s all out because I was obviously hunting deer, just a basic deer hunting rifle. Missed the first time. Even with the shot, he then looked up and just still stat- sat there. Didn't run, didn't do anything. And I was telling my friends about it when I got back to camp. And I thought, you know what? Now that I've actually thought about it, I reckon that might have been an old fox and perhaps maybe his hearing was gone because... He was only 120 metres away. How on earth could he not hear this whistle? It is shriekingly loud, and he didn't even wake up. It was only that I had a shot at him because when he was lying down, he, you could only just see the top of his ears. So it wasn't until I had a first shot that he popped his head up just a little bit, just enough for me to get a better shot, and then bang. But he didn't even run with the first shot, and I'm like... So much craziness happened with that whole situation of you know, the, the fox actually standing on top of the dead fox and then yeah. me calling and shooting and not even showing any interest even after I shot. I mean, if you shoot, yeah, as you know, if you shoot at a fox, I mean, generally they're not really waiting around to have a, have a, you know, have a look and see what's happening, you know? <laughs> No, normally gone, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I, I was totally blown away. But what was really good about the experience was just sort of sitting there and watching these foxes just come across my path, 150 metres away, 300 metres away, and watching them hunt and see what they actually do. And it was just a really, really good experience. And the first time I've actually been on a property where uh, that you can actually see them in you know, actually out hunting. And it's quite crazy because normally a lot of us over here will spend a lot of time, you know, whistling them in, using a Fox Pro, a button whistle, whatever it may be to try and bring them in. But, uh, yeah, it was a really, really good experience, that's for sure. Yeah, well, we, we tend to um, – I think uh, we spend a lot of time – well, I personally, I find I get good results from just sitting in high seats and stuff like that. I've got quite a few high, so- high seats in um, sort of decent sort of areas where foxes are just renowned to kind of come through. I think when you know your ground uh, and you know – where you were likely to see a fox, then I'll put a high seat up and, um, yeah, I can get good results from, from them. Sometimes I use a call. Uh, I'm not really... I tend to um, I tend to go out and just look. Like, if I'm out at night, then I'll normally use a thermal imager and I'll walk around and I'll spot foxes and I'll walk out to them um, and then we'll shoot them in night vision. That's that's kind of how we, we, we sort of do things here. A lot of us do things here. Um, we still some of us still use the old school lamp and that I did for a long time. It's only more probably the last sort of five or six years that I've been getting into uh, using thermal images and night vision and that. Um, but whichever way you do it, you can either walk out and find them, or as I find now, the older I get, the more inclined I feel to to sit in a high seat and, uh, and see what uh, what comes along. So um, yeah, it's surprising what what sort of results you can get like that. Um, I do do a bit of calling as well. I've got a, I've got a Fox Pro and I've also got um, one of the Tensfield whistles. Um, uh, I've got one of those. Um, I think they just call it. Well, over here we call it uh, Best Fox Call. I think is the, yeah, is the company that makes yep. them. Yep. Yeah, it's just kind of like like the old reed style call where you've got like kind of two lollipop sticks together with like a reed in the middle. You know that sort of thing. I mean. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of bite down on it and and blow through at the same time. You can vary the pitch. They're very good. Um, so that's that's one we use, or we just squeak off the back of the hand, which works 
probably better than anything if you you know if you've got the kind of knack of doing it. It's um, it's interesting, isn't it, though, how foxes react sort of differently during the day and night. You know, as you know, if they see you or or smell you during the day, they're totally gone. But I don't know if you've had this yeah. experience, but I'd like to find out where if you're in, I'm in a you know diesel four wheel drive or whatever it may be, and I go into a property and we're spotlighting them like you. Let's say we don't have thermal vision. I've called them in with the whistle, and they're they're literally almost right. <laughs> almost standing right in front of my car next to my door and I'm like why is this, exactly that, yeah. why are they not running yeah. away why is their temperament so different during the night as it is during the day I mean I'm in my car the engine is running and it's three or four meters it's coming so close it can surely hear the engine I mean and we're just like well okay bang all right <laughs> you know I think probably speaking from a from a British sort of point of view and how we do things here and how things are here um, I mean, over here, foxes probably see cars and, and trucks and vehicles, I don't know how many times in a, of an evening as they're out and about. They're always crossing roads. They're, you know, they're, they're, they haven't got to go far before they see a vehicle. And probably 99.9% of the time, that vehicle does them no harm unless it hits them, of course, and then they're not around to tell you about it. So um, <laughs> a lot of the time, that vehicle doesn't do them any harm, and they don't probably don't associate that with danger. And probably much the same as well, where um, they're in areas where there's humans have been around, whether they're people walking their dogs or or um, just going about their, their day-to-day business, you know. So they're probably used to the smell of humans quite a lot. But it depends on the area. I've got some areas of ground which are a lot more isolated than others. And on a more isolated area, I've had foxes where they've come into a call and they've come into maybe three, four hundred yards, and then you see that they've caught your scent at sort of, you know, a hundred yards or something. They come in from three or four hundred yards. They come into sort of a couple of hundred yards away. When you can see them pick up your scent, and they're gone. Whereas others, last year we were out and we literally, me and the, the guy I was out with, we was out um, stalking. We went along a, a footpath on the on the foot of some hills, which comes down some houses. And we literally passed a fox no more than he, he walked past us about three metres from us <laughs> on the footpath. Wow. So, yeah, and he obviously, I mean, it was at night, we stayed dead still because we saw it sort of coming towards us, but we didn't have a safe backstop on it. So we had to kind of wait, and the fox actually walked straight past us. And he obviously saw us because it kind of moved away out off the footpath around us and then back on the footpath and carried on. Um, he didn't get all that far because behind us we had a safe backstop, so we just turned around and shot it. But uh, <laughs> it just goes to show how different they can be, and how in a different area what they consider or what they deem to be safe and what isn't safe for them. Um, I think foxes are a lot more intelligent than probably what we give them credit for. Guys, we're just get another quick break, and we'll be right back. Looking for outdoor equipment for your next adventure? At Aussie Outdoor Gear, you can find cooking equipment, camo clothing for kids, backpacks, camo accessories, and much more. We cater for your hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, and other outdoor pursuits with our unique product range. AussieOutdoorGear.com.au. Quality gear at affordable prices. Mark, I want to talk about long-range shooting. Uh, What interests you about it, and how did you get into it? Uh, I, I kind of fell into it. To be honest, um, some of the ground that I shoot over is, is quite sort of open and um, and hilly, so it lends itself to long range shooting. So um, it was really just a, a kind of a, a needs must sort of thing. Um, 
it's hard to describe, but a lot of it's kind of like valleys. So if you can imagine if you're in the bottom of the valley, and because the foxes are where they always seem to want to take the high ground. So if you're in the bottom of the valley looking up, there's the fox on top of the hill. But the trouble is it's skyline, so you haven't got a safe shot on it. And this was a problem that you, you quite often find on this particular bit of ground. So very often you'd be on one side of the bank and you'd look over the valley and you'd see one on the opposite bank, sort of three, four, five hundred yards away. So it kind of it, it sort of started from that really, um, and it was just a because there's very little cover on this ground. You kind of you struggle to get within a couple of hundred yards of a fox during the daytime. Um, so it, it sort of started from that and um, just progressed and got out of hand. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's something that I just really enjoy doing. I I find it fascinating when you can. Whether whether it be you're shooting a, a fox or, a, or just a target or whatever, but the ability to sort of reach out and touch something at a long range um, when you've you've planned that shot, you've ranged the target, you've taken into account the wind and all the other things that are going to have an impact on that bullet, and um, it all comes together and you make that hit. It's it's very rewarding. Yeah, I want to talk about some of the firearms you use. Now, I've got to give you a little bit of credit. Actually, I was looking at. I wanted to get a 6.5 millimeter cartridge, so I was thinking, you know, 6.5 Creedmoor. Looked at all the options out there, looked at 260, and I thought, you know what, I'll jump on the internet, I'll find out on YouTube, especially, I'll jump on there and find out what people are using, look at the different calibers. Uh, you came up when you were shooting the 260, and also and a guy from South Africa, Matt, who does Air Arms Hunting South Africa, and you both use 260. And I thought, well, wow, if these guys are using it, it must be a damn good caliber. So why did you decide on the on the 260 Remington for long range varminting? Well, it it started off. I had a um, I bought a 6.5 by 55, which I was using for sort of deer stalking and um, just general. Um, just general stuff in a fox and, and, and a little bit of long range. I was starting to sort of push the push the ranges out, starting to sort of go three hundred yards, four hundred yards, you know, that kind of um that kind of sort of ranges. Um and uh I thought I'm gonna upgrade my gear, you know, to to be able to get the accuracy and precision that I wanted, I thought the custom rifle was gonna be the way to go. So I went to a company that was um I'm not sure if they're still trading. I don't know if they are. There's a company called Border Barrels. Uh, they're based up near Scotland. And um, I dealt with the guys on the internet and over the phone and that. And I spoke to the Lee, I think his name was, a guy from there. Had a chat with him. Initially going to go for another 6.5 to 55, but in a, um, you know, a custom rifle. And he said, well, why not go 260? He said, you can have a short action, blah, blah, blah. And to be honest, I was kind of wet behind the ears at the time with, with all that sort of thing. And I just went. Well, if you think that's a, a good thing to, to go with, it sounds good to me. I'll, I'll take your advice. Um, and it was the best thing I ever did. And at the time, I think I think my firearms officer, the guy that comes around from the police to check all your, all your bits and pieces and that, you know, he kind of said um, he really didn't know anything about the cartridge. It was totally new to him then. And uh, he said, I think I've only got one other guy on my books that's got a 260. Um, and after that, now it seems to be quite the... Quite the you know, quite a popular cartridge. So I was sort of one of the first probably to, well, I say one of the first, was one of the first people locally anyway to, to kind of jump on that on that bandwagon. Um, but yeah, it certainly paid off. It's a great, great little round. 
Yeah, no, it's, I really enjoy shooting it, actually. I'm using, and I'll get into that. I want to talk about bullets, too, because I found what you're shooting interesting. First off, you started off, if I'm correct, the 140 grain AMAX, but they discontinued yeah. them. Now you got the, which is what I shoot, the 143 grain ELDX. Um, I guess yeah. two questions. What was the reason for using the heavier bullets uh, for varmints? And are you a bit disappointed they've discontinued the 140 grain AMAX? Uh, no, not really. Because I mean, to be honest, the the 143 ELVX that it, that pretty much just replaces the AMAX. The AMAX was a great bullet, um, but these are, are very very similar. The 143s are very similar to the 140s ballistically. There's not much in it, um, but they're um, they seem to be a lot better, uh, a bit more consistent. And I've had no problems at all with the bullet. It expands, um, does everything it should do. So. Um, yeah, I'm quite happy with that with that replacement. The main reason for going with a heavier bullet was um, a couple of reasons, really. I started off with a 100 grain. I think I was shooting 100 grain nozzles to begin with, and I started sort of stretching the ranges out. They're quite nice, uh, nice bullets. But um, what I was finding was shooting at, say, probably anything over five, 600 yards, with a 100 grain bullet, it was more difficult to pick up the splash from the bullet. So you couldn't, sort of really see where it was landing. So if you're shooting at a target or maybe you're plinking at rabbits or, or whatever, you was getting a little splash, but it you'd have a job to, to see it. Whereas with a heavier bullet, it gave a much better sort of splash. Um, so that was great because if you can see where you're missing, then you can adjust and you can you can see where you're going wrong. But otherwise, you're just, you, you know, you're wasting your ammunition. Um, so that was one reason. The other reason is is that with a heavier bullet, it bucks the wind a bit better. Now, the wind is something that is much harder to uh, account for. It's a lot more variable. So anything that you can do which is going to um, better your odds uh, when you're when you're battling against the wind is is a you know it's a great advantage. Um, yeah, you get more drop with a heavier bullet. But the thing is, you can range target, and you know that's, say, 500 yards away. So you can dial that in. That's easily accountable. You know the range, and you know your drops well enough. Then that should be a straightforward um, thing to, to, to sort of get over, whereas the wind is a bit more variable. So if you can sort of cheat on the wind, then that's the way forward. So the rest is just homework. What groups do you sort of expect from reloads of a projectile? You know, when you're considering it for sort of long range, you've got your 143 grains, you're, you're having a, you know, you go to the range, you're shooting on paper. What sort of groups would you consider that bullet to be appropriate? Well, I would normally, to be honest, I don't really shoot an awful lot of paper. Um, it literally to be just kind of load testing. Um, and I'll work up a load and then I'll stick to that load and I won't dabble with any. I'd, I'd, I'll always just sort of uh, have one load, and that'll be the load that I use for everything, whether it be deer, fox, crows. <laughs> it doesn't matter because <laughs> I think it's important. I, I just think it's important that, that you get one load and you know how that load shoots, and you know the rifle, and you know the you know you know the ammunition combination. If you can get all that sorted and and uh, squared away, then um, that that's half the battle. So. Uh, yeah, I think it's just important just to stick with, with, with one with one type of um, ammunition. 
I think there was one of the articles on one of the blogs that I was watching too. And, you know, I'd consider sort of half an inch to be pretty good from any sort of factory rifle. A lot of the rifles I use are a, a ticker. And I think there was an article and they were actually talking about anything smaller than half an inch, especially if you go down to like 0.3 of an inch or a, or a quarter a quarter inch at 100 metres, for an example. They're actually diminishing returns and the percentages you actually get out of that benefit chasing that, you know, quarter inch load at 100 metres is not really worth it and you know throwing continually throwing money down range with you know projectiles especially when you know projectiles especially good ones in you know in in 2019 are definitely not getting any cheaper so i try and get you know if i can get a half an inch i'm pretty happy with that and then try and work out the load from there but my next question was a good one do you think do you look for because i noticed in especially the high calibers that i've got even my 243 i've noticed the slower burning powders the not the, the not very fast powders seem to be more accurate for me do you worry about um, uh, the speed of the cartridge, as in, do you want to get the maximum amount of speed, or do you concentrate on more on accuracy of the cartridge? I, I don't worry about speed at all, really, because at the end of the day, all it means is if you're a couple of you know, hundred or two hundred um, foot per second slower, does it matter? You just click up another another click on your elevation. It's, it's no big deal, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think it's far more important is consistency. That is the key. Um, you, you need a consistent round. It obviously needs to shoot accurately, as you say, sort of half inch group. I think that's that, that's pretty realistic. And if it's shooting half inch or below, then we all like to shoot these little bug old groups, which is brilliant if you can. Um, but realistically, half an inch, because when you're out and about field conditions, you're shooting off a bipod in the you know in a field, you, you kind of you, your accuracy is going to be diminished anyway. So the actual ability of being able to shoot. Um, a real sort of kind of tight group when you're out in the, in the field is it's not like shooting off a bench so I don't worry too much about that as long as I'm shooting a consistent um, sort of half inch group then that's good enough for me um, and yeah I would uh, I'll just be looking for consistency as in uh, like your um, your extreme spreads with your uh, with your velocities ideally that wants to be in single figures if you can get it down single figures then you know that each round is pretty much going to be flying one on top of another out of range. That's the important bit. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Putting how, how important is you know good grouping over say putting it over a chronograph and getting into that sig- single digits in the differences in velocity. How does that affect uh, the issues you see at long range with being able to hit those targets consistently? Because I guess if you've got different velocities and there's too much of a swing, it's not going to be too consistent. Well, this is it. Yeah, I mean, if you're shooting um, if you're shooting tight groups at 100 say 100 meters or whatever, and, and you're um, popping away and you're getting nice little tight groups, that's great. But you might have 100 foot per second difference in your in your bullet speeds from one to another. But you're not going to, you see what I mean? You're not going to um, really see that at 100 metres. At 100 metres, you, it, it would probably just group in the same same spot. But if you take that out to seven, 800 metres, that's going to have a massive difference. So you're you're going to have bullets dropping low, shooting high. Um, and yeah, so that's that's where uh, that's where the consistency comes into play. You need to you need to have that consistency with your bullet speeds to to know that at range you're going to be dropping each one in the same place. I want to talk about. Uh, 
scopes, obviously, very, very important part of long-range shooting. Um, tell us about what scope you use. I think you use Night Force NSX. How, how different is it? Especially there's a lot of conjecture about uh, first focal plane versus second focal plane scope. Now, if I'm correct, Night Force NSX is a second focal plane scope. Do you see That's much right, of a yeah. difference in that? You don't really worry about that? What's your thoughts on um, scope selection and just in general? Um, I think, to be honest, it's, it's personal preference, whatever you like. I have noticed a lot of people that shoot long range do tend to favour the um, Night Force or um, Schmidt and Bender. Um, Night Force, are, I, I personally really like the Night Force because I think they've got um, the turrets on them are very nice. They're just very nice, positive click turrets. You know you've got a good, well-built scope with the Night Force. It's very strong and... Um, I mean, I, I I have one. Uh, I had my uh, which rifle? I think it was my two sixty. Yeah, it was my two sixty. I had that in a, a rifle slip on my shoulder, and I jumped over a gate, and then I landed on the other side. The the, uh, the strap on this um, is just a cheap gun slip. It just snapped, or it came unstitched. Probably the weight of the two sixty. It's a pretty heavy rifle. But anyway, the the rifle dropped straight on top of the scope, straight on top of the elevation turret, went straight down, straight onto concrete. Um, a uh, bit of ground and I thought oh, that's it that's going to smash the sky that's going to have trashed it and it didn't even knock it out of zero so I think if you can do that to a scope then um, you know you're onto a good thing so you, I think all these things anything like that if it's um, being used in war zones and stuff I think there's part of the Night Forces advert there's one with a bullet hole through the scope and I don't know if you've seen that yeah, I mean, and, yeah, um, yeah. yeah and I mean that's a classic example of a Night Force scope they do take the knocks. Um, and more importantly, I suppose, or just as important, is uh, is whether or not it's going to be consistent, as in you should be able to dial it and then dial back again and it come back to your zero and, and that kind of stuff. So it needs to be reliable like that as well. Um, and, yeah, Night Force, uh, for me, tick all those boxes. I've been very impressed with them. How long have you owned that scope for? Have you owned that for quite a long time, that one? Or do you tend to replace your gear on a regular basis or not really? Just, you know, once it's sort of, you know, had its day, then maybe you get rid of it or you try and keep it as long as you can? If it works and it's uh, doing its job, it stays. It's as simple as that. You know, anything. I tend to buy decent stuff. Um, I've been there, done that. I bought cheap things and we've all fallen victim into that. I think, you know, you kind of think, oh, that looks all right for Three hundred quid, and then <laughs> you yeah. find that actually oh, we've done all done that. We've all done quid, that. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I think um, we've got a saying here: uh, you know, buy once, cry once. So in other words, you you, you you spend the money, you buy something decent. Yeah, it's it's nasty when you first buy something, but you enjoy it from then on. You know. Yeah. Just not, and, just uh, not at the yeah. time of purchase when you're outlaying big money. But uh, hey, exactly. buy once, cry once. Them. They always say exactly, yeah. I mean, I've got I've, that two sixty. I think when I bought that, it probably cost me uh, a couple of grand or something, you know, sort of two thousand quid or something. But yeah, every time I use that rifle, ever since it's it's, I still enjoy using it. And the same with the scope. I think I probably spent I don't know, maybe fifteen hundred pound or something on that. But then um, I bought that, and I must have had that now, or maybe twelve, no, probably more than that, fifteen years. Wow. 15 years, wow. I expect I probably had that. So, yeah, and it's still going strong and that's been through all sorts. It's practically been through a war zone. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's done well. 
when you first, I guess, developed the 260, was it, did it come with factory barrel? Did you shoot the barrel out first? Did you take the barrel off? Did you just buy it as an action? How did you come to develop that, uh, that firearm in particular? The 260 was um, basically the, the company that put it together for me. It was a, a custom rifle builders. Um, and uh, what I did was I supplied a action for them, uh, you know, just a donor action. So I bought a, um, a 22250 um, Remington 700, one of the BDLs, an old, an old one, a bit battered, an old Woodstock battered um, rifle, left hand, obviously, because I'm one of the disabled shooters amongst us. <laughs> and um, I, I bought one of those uh, and literally just sent them the action. They then blueprinted the action. Uh, it was all Cerakoted and a, um, a Bartlin 24-inch um, semi-varmint barrel put on it, um, dual trigger on it, and they dropped it into a actually international stock, uh, put a 20 MOA rail on it for me, basically just killed it all up for exactly how I wanted it. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just chopped it off with a Nightfall scope and a, an MAE um, T12 scout moderator. I don't know if you use them over there, the, the um, MAE moderators, very good moderators. I yeah. think they're actually from New Zealand, I think. They're Everything, be surprised whether one of the many, or only countries, I should say, in the world, or one of anyway, that actually bans suppressors. We can't own a suppressor in Australia because they think everyone's going to turn into, oh, yeah. you know, a Hollywood hitman sniper. It's crazy. Yeah, no, it's ridiculous, yeah, because it doesn't, the thing is, it doesn't, um, as you've probably seen from videos, it doesn't um, reduce it that much. It just kind of saves your hearing, you know. Uh, it makes it a lot more pleasant pleasant to shoot as well because it takes a bit of the recoil out of it. You can watch your shots land at range and that. So, yeah, it's um, it's a pity because they are a lot more comfortable to use. When you were talking about barrels before too, very interesting. I mean, do you – I know for that particular, I guess you said semi-varmint barrel. Do you worry about, you know, barrel – like, you know, a sporter, varmint versus, you know, uh, trying to get it working up a load for those particular rifles too? Cause, or do you worry just more about, um, you know, the weight of it to bring the uh, recoil down? What's your reason for sort of heavy barreled varmints versus the sporter type barrels? Well, I've, I've got, I've actually got two custom rifles. I've got two, two, three as well, which is, um, that's more my kind of fox in at night and just general sort of walkabout rifle. Um, the 260 is more of a kind of sit and wait sort of rifle. Uh, it's a heavy rifle. It's not something you want to go lugging around for, for miles, you know. So having a, a varmint barrel on that is, uh, is great because it means you can fire a lot of shots. So if you're just kind of plinking at rabbits or whatever, or you're, you're just doing some long range target shooting, whatever you're doing, then shot to shot consistency is, is very good. You haven't got to kind of wait for the barrel to cool down to kind of get your accuracy back and things like that. So, uh, for me, having that kind of heavy rifle was great, and it it soaks up the recoil as well. Not that you get an awful lot of recoil from a 260. They're, they're very, very comfortable to shoot, to be honest. Uh, so, yeah, I've, I've kind of got two different rifles, two different sort of, um, um, sort of situations. I've seen on your, I think it's your 243, but how do you rate the the Night Force over, I think it's the Swarovski X5i? Um, I've looked at the Swarovski stuff before, no doubt fantastic glass, but sometimes I felt they've maybe been a little bit slow behind the times with their turret-style systems a little bit, but how do you like the X5i? I mean, it's, obviously it's a pretty penny. I'd probably love to own one myself, but how do you compare the two? 
Uh, well, that one, you've probably seen the video. I've got a Brown and X-Bolt on that. I was using yeah. it with a two-foot-three, as you say. That was um, the Brown and X-Bolt and the um, the uh, the X5i. They were both on test. They, I don't actually own either of them. They were both, um, I was just doing reviews on them. I had a long-term loan on the, uh, on the Brown in. Uh, and actually, funny enough, I think as well with the uh, with the Swarovski. Swarovski, I found um, they're very nice scopes, very very good glass. Probably the quality of the glass is probably better than the Night Force, if I'm honest, or certainly better than the older Night Force. I think Night Force have upped their game a bit more recently with the uh, ATAC R and scopes like that. Um, the turret sort of system with it, I. It was it was clever. It was a clever um, type of scope, the X5i. Um, but it didn't really float my boat in as much as it wasn't as positive and didn't feel as robust as the, the Night Force do. Uh, I'm sure it does it does exactly as it should, and it probably is a lot more robust than what it kind of feels. But just for me, I preferred that real kind of chunky sort of solid turret on the Night Force. Um, and I just felt that the Night Force would take a bit more punishment. And I'm I'm quite rough with my stuff, you know. They're, they're tools. My rifles are kind of tools for what I do. So... Um, they do get knocked around. They do get battered. So for me, probably a Swarovski, um, I would probably still go with a knife or over a Swarovski is what I'm, what I'm trying to say. However, saying that, I did recently also test their latest one. Um, I forget what it's called now, that real, um, real expensive one with all the, uh, um, like the ballistic stuff in it. You know what yeah, I mean? I've seen, I think it's like range, is it? And uh, what's it called? Um, I know. I've just gone totally blank too. I had it on my mind. Yeah. <laughs> while you keep talking, I'll search it on the internet. While you keep talking, <laughs> this is the benefits of podcasting. Yeah. See? Yeah, I'll forget now. I've totally gone blank as well. But anyway, um, that particular scope, I was really impressed with that. I thought that was excellent. Um, it, it, it almost made long range shooting too easy because out of probably seven or eight hundred yards. It was spot on, annoyingly so, if you know what I mean, because I've been used to sort of kind of plugging everything in and in a kestrel wind meter to get all my drops, all this sort of stuff. And this thing just does it all at a touch of a button, and it just gives you a holdover mark. It illuminates like a little line on your crosshair to to use as an aiming point. Um, yeah, I mean they 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 were really good. They're a lot of money, but they um, they certainly they'd be brilliant, especially uh, if you're lamping and stuff. If you're out foxing and that. You can you can get a fox in the lamp and you can ping that range and it shows you where to hold straight away. So that kind of thing would be uh, would be would be brilliant. I'm looking at them now. Swarovski Z3, Z5, Z6i, Z8i, yeah. Z3. Right. Is it Z3? I think that's the other one. Yeah, the Z3, Z5, Z6i, Z8i, and maybe a DS. I think I'm just looking at them now. Yeah. DS. That's the one. It's the DS. Yeah, right. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, it's the DS. That's uh, the one with all the ballistic um, info and the range finder and that all built into it. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just looking yeah, at it. Yeah, very good. Also, too, I was, uh, noticed you were, I guess, is that because it was on loan, you were you were just using the factory ammo for the 243. You didn't want to reload because, what, you, you had to send it back or was it you preferred factory ammo or? Uh, it was, um, yeah, I mean, that was, it was just a factory rifle and that, and, uh, I think they sent me a few rounds, um, that I was using with it, but yeah, it was just kind of, I didn't, I didn't bother reloading for it. To be honest, I only actually reload for the 260 for the simple reason that, um, I'm one of these sort of people that once something works, leave it alone, you know, if it even broke, don't fix it kind of, um, attitude. So with the 260, I've got all my reloading gear, all geared up, set up purely for that 
And once I find a load that I'm happy with, I just stick with it. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't mess around resetting up my, my scales and the dispenser and all that sort of thing for any other uh, load. So even with the 223, because I'm only really shooting out to a maximum of a few hundred yards, I think if you just use decent quality factory ammunition, it's nowadays you can get such accuracy from that. You'd probably struggle to reload as accurate. Or I find in the in the, the 223 that I've got, my hand loads... I can't beat the um, the super performance with the reloads. It's it's just as accurate with factory ammunition. So I'll just stick with that. Yeah, I know the two two three is definitely a great round. What percentage do you think do you use the the two sixty over the sort of two two three? Um, well, for foxing, I should think probably I should think about seventy percent of my foxes that I would shoot uh, throughout the year would be with a two two three. Um, and then I'd probably shoot the rest when I'm out stalking or something. I might have the 260 with me and the fox comes along, so he gets it. Um, or I might be out early mornings, I'll sort of sit out and uh, I'll be out waiting and, and looking more for the long range um, foxes, you know. So, yeah. Um, yeah. We're just going to have a quick break, guys, and we'll be right back. The Australian Hunting Podcast is the only hunting, shooting and fishing podcast radio show in Australia. With over 40,000 downloads per month, you are sure to find some information that can help you. If you love hunting, shooting, fishing and a little bit of politics, the Australian Hunting Podcast has you covered. To listen, check us out on iTunes and visit australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Mark, I want to talk about some of the very, very valuable gear we need for long-range shooting. Can you go through just a little bit of the gear that someone might need if they want to get into long-range shooting, preferably long-range hunting? Yeah. Um, no, well, obviously, you're going to need an accurate rifle. Uh, and you want something that's going to have a, a sort of fairly – it needs to be something like a 6.5 or uh, certainly a, a, a heavier um, calibre. Um, so you need an accurate rifle, you need a good scope, uh, something like a Night Force or a Swarovski or uh, like that kind of thing, something that you can dial in. Um, and other than that, really, it's pretty much just a, a, some decent optics as in binoculars. I mean, I use um, a pair of Leica binoculars with a rangefinder built in, the Geovids. Yeah. Um, and I find they're pretty good. Um, Swarovski also do a nice set of binoculars and that as well with a rangefinder in them. Or um, you can also buy the, the, the smaller sort of handheld rangefinders. But again, if you're out and you're in a hunting environment, you're spotting for deer or fox, you want to be able to sort of, if you spot a, a fox or a deer at a few hundred yards, you want to be able to range it without taking your eyes off of it. Whereas if you've got a separate rangefinder and you're looking with a pair of binoculars, it means you then got to go from the binoculars. You then got to find that deer or fox using the rangefinder. Uh, then you've got to range it. Then you've got to, get your, your, your dope uh, dial it into your right and it all takes a lot of time at which point the fox or the deer has moved and you need to start the process again so yeah <laughs> it's quite sort of I a, must admit Mark that's, 
that's one thing I really regret. I bought the I got I got a Leica, the I think it's the twenty four hundred R, and I've got a pair of Nikon Monarch Seven binoculars. But you probably if yep. I had my time over it, and you know, as you know, these things last quite a long time before you've got to replace them. Yeah, you know, ten, fifteen years, twenty years if you look after them correctly. But I probably wish yeah. I would have bought the rangefinder inside the binoculars. Yeah, you would have probably paid a bit more, but at the end of the day, you know, it's something you can have long term. And it's you know, I've got a Kestrel as well, fifty seven hundred, so I've got to have the Kestrel, yep. I've got to have the binoculars out, I've got to have, you know, the rangefinder out, you've got the gun and the scope, you've got your, you know, bags and bipods, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well. I just wish I'd have done that yep. at the first instance, I really do. Yeah, it's, it is worthwhile, definitely. Um, and again, going back to the Swarovski, the, the DS, that's the great thing about that is you, once you're onto that target, if you're watching a fox and it's cutting across a hill or something, you can constantly range it and it constantly updates your, your whole day. You haven't got to go off to your Kestrel or your rangefinder. It's all there. You know, you, you haven't got to take your eye off the target, which is uh, a massive advantage um, and probably would put a few more foxes uh, in the bag, as it were, for me, something like that. So I'm I'm still kind of toying with the idea of, of maybe at some point going for a, a, a Swarovski DS and um, giving that a go. Uh, yeah, but going back to what you were saying, uh, other equipment and that, um, yeah, certainly some, uh, uh, I always use a rear bag underneath the, the, the butt of the rifle. That is a massive um, advantage when you're shooting long range. If you've got the bag, I, if, I don't presume you're familiar with uh, using it by the sounds of it, but for anyone that hasn't uh, ever used one, what you do is you, you squeeze that bag with your other hand. I'm, I'm left-handed, so I'll be shooting left-handed. And with my right hand, I'd have that under the butt of the rifle. Um, and you squeeze the bag to raise and lower the, uh, your crosshairs, your aiming point. Then all you do is when you're on target, you maintain that pressure on the bag, and that is a rock-steady hold. Um, and when you get used to shooting like that, it's, it's miles better than any other way of, uh, of shooting off a bipod. Um, as far as bipods go, I'm using one of the Atlas bipods. Um, I yeah. don't, do you have those over there? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I bought one probably four or five months ago, and I was quite surprised because when I first got it, I thought, what the hell is this thing? This thing's tiny. It's got no, It's not very heavy. And then when I used it, I thought, <laughs> now I know why it's so good. Now I know why it's so good. Mm. Yeah, they're, they're, you pay a little bit for it, but again, it goes back to the bar once, cry once. Um, I was using the Harris bipods, but the Atlas bipod is a lot quicker to deploy and, uh, and they're a lot more versatile as well than, than the old Harris that I was using. So, um, yeah, I've, I've now got two of them. I'll put one on the 223 as well. So, uh, yeah, I like them. I think they're, they're very good bipods. I was even looking at, too, the – I think it's one of them. I'm, I've got to find out the one that's got Bluetooth connectivity as well. But I was looking at, the, I think, the Vortex Fury HD 5000 binoculars with the rangefinder built in. But I think the Sig Sauer, I think it's Kilo, maybe 3,000. Um, they're about yeah, they're a couple, they're a couple of gram, but the good part about them is it really cuts off a lot of different issues of having multiple different – devices so i'll have the binoculars and rangefinder in there as well and if you do have the kestrel it actually connects if you've got the bluetooth the, the link version then you can actually connect directly to the kestrel as well and get your elevation readings uh, all at the same time i think and that's just bloody awesome but now i've got to yeah. open my wallet again as per usual and, <laughs> you know, and, and buy yeah, it but but if it's worth it well, to cut is- off a lot of different issues i think it probably would be definitely yeah. be worth it 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I know that I've missed out on a lot of opportunities on Foxes um, purely because you've seen that Fox, you've watched it trot up the bank in front of you, sort of five, six hundred yards away, and you, everything's right, all the conditions are perfect, but that Fox just hasn't stopped for long enough, not long enough for you to range it, dial it all in and, and everything else before it's moved again. And as you know yourself, if you're going out to four or five hundred yards, if that Fox walks another ten yards, that's the, the your correction on that could well make the difference between a hit and a miss. So um, it really does need to be your, your range in that need to be precise uh, when you're going out to 500 yards or so. So um, yeah, it's very frustrating. Whereas if you've got something that cuts down the time it takes to, to process all the information and put all your all your your, your um, ballistic dope into your rifle and that, then yeah, definitely an advantage. Yeah, I know. It's it's it depends how much money we're willing to pay, and as you know, I noticed too. Like when yeah. I was viewing the foxes just last weekend, they t- especially when they're hunting, they tend not to stay still for very long. I noticed, and I've noticed in a lot of your videos as well. When you're trying to film them, you're trying to get all this stuff together at the same time. The 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 filming, the solution. You know, getting the gun set up properly and the foxes they just keep moving like just stop your little buggers just for about 30 yeah. seconds then we'll be fine <laughs> it's not in their best interest yeah. to stop for that long of a time though but you know no. well as you say that they're, they're constantly active that's the thing with a fox and it's very often that what i thought sort of gives it away if you get if you're sort of watching over a, a side of a hill or something and there's a fox on it it's very often, it's not until it's, it moves that you see it. If it's just sat in a bit of cover, uh, just watching what's going on, you'll probably not even clock it. you probably just think it's a rabbit or whatever. Whereas uh, if you see it walking around, nosing around, foxes are very, um, what's the word, you, you know, as soon as as soon as you see just by the movement, you know, that's a fox. <laughs> you yeah, know what exactly, I mean? Yeah. They've got like quite a characteristic sort of way of moving around while they zigzag across a hill and stuff, and you can you can clock them straight away. At so, least the uh, rabbits yeah. will uh, hang around for a lot longer than the the foxes, because normally the rabbits will just sit there, you know, chewing on grass. And the foxes, though, they're constantly on the hunt. And I've seen many videos where you're trying to film them, you're in a good position, and then all of a sudden they move again, and you've got to readjust the camera. Which is, you know, what can you do? It's just how it is. The it's hunting. If yeah. it was easy, we'd all be doing. It, I guess. Yeah, and I've, I've yeah, I put my hands up. I must have uh, missed out on quite a few opportunities on Fox in that period because I'm trying to film them and get onto them. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> if I just got straight onto it and pulled the trigger, I would have, I would have got it. But uh, that's, that's uh, you know, that's uh, the, the pros and cons, I guess, to trying to film what you're doing. But um, it's great when you get it in the bag and you get you get it all on film and that. It's um, it's great that you can sort of then like share that memory if you like all that experience and. Uh, get it out there so yeah yeah it makes it worthwhile when it all comes together no worry man a couple more questions to finish off i want to talk about yet yeah, the shooting solutions as well the kestrel i run the kestrel as well same as you and i've also seen one of your videos too which i got the tip from you and johnny from point of impact tv about the um Estrelloc application as well because i've got a little 22 yep. and I, I put just a you know a cheap scope on it with just mill dots and i've noticed too i can use the actual Strelock app to shoot up to about 150 metres using uh, the reticle, yeah. which is re- works really well, actually. Yeah, you know, But, I mean, anything beyond that, and obviously you've got to start 
I mean, I've got a different 22 if I want to dial stuff. I've got a CZ455. But, I mean, getting yep. out to that sort of 150 metres um, using the reticle is a really good way to do it. So can you just sort of discuss yep. the Kestrels and also, I guess, the Strelock up and, and how they help you shoot long range and sort of make that, you know, that solution accurate? Yeah, well, it, just picking on what you were saying there about the T2 the and that, I do the exact same thing. When I've, um, I've got a little CZ uh, American 452. Um, they're brilliant little rifles, very accurate in that. And I just find that um, I was doing the same thing. I was, I, I was actually just using just a cheap Hawk scope with the mill dots. Yep. And like you were saying, you can get out to 150, sort of 150 yards, 150 metres. Uh, just by using those, and uh, that's great. Especially if you're using the subsonic ammunition and stuff, you can you can do the job quietly. It's brilliant. So uh, from a for a rabbiting tool, that little combination works really well. Uh, I've just recently just bought a um, a sight mark um, scope for it, which has got uh, dialable turrets on it. Uh, that's proven to be a nice little scope too. So um, yeah, I'm hoping to uh, have a little play around with that and start dialing a few shots and that end to get a bit more, bit more precise than just the holdover um, with the two-two. So that should be should be quite fun. Uh, but yeah, the Strelok app um, that that was what I sort of started with before I bought the Kestrel. I was using the Strelok, and uh, it's surprisingly quite accurate. It's a it's a good little uh, good little app. Um, same with anything like that, any ballistic calculator though, if you're not putting the, the right information into it, you're not going to get the right information out. Um, what I mean by that is if you're putting in incorrect muzzle velocities into it or you're putting in uh, the wrong BC for your bullet or all those all those little things, you'll normally find if you're not getting the right readings from it and it's not matching your uh, uh, trajectory, then... It's, it's, it's what it'll be will be is you haven't put something in right you know or you're not zero bang on at 100 yards or 100 metres or whatever it is that you put in uh, a lot of people do that they'll say oh yeah it's yeah, zero for 100, 100 yards and then you say well did you actually range it bang on 100 yards and they went well no but I know it's about 90 to 110 it's, it's there or thereabouts you've got to be bang on 100 you know otherwise it's not going to it's not going to work out right so that's important. Whatever ballistic calculator you're using, you do need to put the correct information in to begin with. Yeah, I like the Kestrels. I think they're really good. Uh, I've got one of the old NV four five hundreds, and yeah, it's, uh, it's it has proved very good. I'm quite tempted to uh, to upgrade it at some point in the near future to one of the elite models. That looks pretty decent as well. Uh, we're just going to get another break, guys. We'll be right back. Would you like to advertise on one of the most tech-savvy mediums on the internet? Then why don't you advertise with us on the Australian Hunting Podcast? If you have a product or business that you would like to promote, then we would love to hear from you. Become one of our partner advertisers by calling Jason on 0425 881 967 or email australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. Mark, going on about the twenty-two. do you like shooting the twenty-two? What's your favourite gun to shoot? Which one do you like shooting the most if you just had to pick one? Oh, I hate that question. You only <laughs> pick one. This is I the... only pick one. Yeah. Oh, that'd have to be the 260. It's got to be. It'd have to be the 260 for long-range play. <laughs> I just, that is, yeah, I love doing that. Um, but, yeah, each each has its um, has its sort of like good points. Uh 
But the two twos are. I love shooting a two two as well. Subsonic ammunition that I could just plink away for all day with that. Um, yeah, they're great fun. Great fun to shoot. I, I know so, when uh, we. Sorry, I was going to say, you know, when we use the, uh, going back to the Kestrel just quickly as well, but more more so about yeah. wind. Uh, one thing I really wanted to tackle before we finish off the show, because I thought it was really important about, you know, when you're out on, say, on top of a hill, you might see a fox and rabbits over the other side of the hill. How do you gauge sort of that, um, you know, wind speed and which way the wind is coming from? Of course, we can use the Kestrel uh, to measure the wind speed, but what about which way the wind is actually going? Because a lot of people, when they're shooting, they think the wind is going a certain way but they're either totally getting it wrong or they're totally misjudging the wind speed so how do you normally uh, you know, deal with wind when you're actually shooting long range well that, that, that's that's a subject I could probably spend hours talking about <laughs> <laughs> um, that is the biggest by far the biggest um, like uh, what's the word um, Variable, the sort of thing to face. Yeah, your biggest variable is is going to be the windage. But one tip that I've um, come up with for uh, wind direction, um, yeah. I actually got it off of YouTube. It's um, it's not one of my. I'd love to say it's one of my tips, but it's not. But it's uh, you get a kebab stick, just a wooden kebab stick, stick that in the ground, and then you get a drinking straw, bend it in half, and you put the shorter end over the top of the kebab stick, and that acts like a little uh, like a like a weather vane. And that will point you very sensitively. It will point you uh, in the direction, or it will point the direction that the wind is blowing in. So that's a great little tip, and it's cheap. It doesn't cost you anything. So um, that's a good one for wind direction. Um, the trouble with wind is, it's like if you're using the Kestrel to uh, to get the wind speed, it'll only actually give you the wind speed of where you are. Now, if you're shooting in an area, maybe you've got some trees or something between you and the target, sort of halfway down. Uh, to one side, the wind's, let's say the wind's coming from the left and you've got a row of trees down the left-hand side, well, that's going to shelter that wind. So for part of the, the flight path of that bullet, that wind speed's going to be reduced. So it's all kind of things like that that you've got to take into account. Um, but it's looking, what I tend to do is I tend to use a mixture of things. I'll normally use um, a wind reading from the Kestrel to get a, a, a kind of an overall... Um, wind speed and, and sort of gist of what's what's happening. Um, I'll be able to ascertain which way the wind's coming from. Um, I'll then look at other things downrange, like um, which way the wind's blowing, or how much branches are swaying or moving in the in the wind. Um, if you've got, I know one of the farms I shoot, you quite often there's a bonfire going, and you get the smoke from that, or the smoke from a chimney pot, and things like that. You'll be able to see which way the, the, the smoke is drifting, which way clouds are moving, um, ripples on water, how they're blowing across a, across a pond or something. So all those kind of things are things that you take into account and factor in. Um, so yeah, there's no, I don't think there's any real sort of um, sort of keys to, to reading the wind. It's just a, a mixture of different things and experience. Uh, you can also use something um, called mirage. Um, where in certain conditions you'll be able to see kind of like the, the heat sort of shimmer coming up off the ground. Uh, and you can tell by the angle of how that's coming up. If you can, basically what you have to do is you, you look at the mirror through your scope. Um, it's, it's something that's a lot easier to sort of show someone than try and explain over the, over the phone. But um, you basically dial your scope back so it's very slightly out of focus, so it focuses on the mirage. And you can look at that and you can see like the wavy lines and you can kind of 
ascertain which way and how strong the wind is just from the angle of those lines. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, wind is definitely one of the things that um, it's just so difficult to deal with. I was hunting back last year on some rabbits, you know, about three hundred meters, sometimes even just two fifty, some short range ones. But the wind, especially in this area, it's really flat. Really started blowing up, and you know, I was like trying to figure it out. And I had my Strelock and a little wind meter with me. I didn't have a Kestrel at the time, but. You know, and I was like, wow, man, the wind is something that is really, really difficult and takes a lot of experience to deal with. Definitely. I mean, probably the, the, the best tip is just to go out on windy days and just shoot, just try it and see and learn because um, there's, there's, there's no real sort of key to it. And uh, I'll, I tend to cheat a little bit. I do tend to sort of try and pick days. If I'm, if I'm looking at the weather forecast for the weekend and thinking, right, what day am I going to get out? I'm going to be looking day which has got the least wind <laughs> in case I need to take a long shot so if I can shoot in anything under sort of well ideally I'm looking for sort of five mile an hour or less if I've got five mile an hour wind it's like oh perfect realistically if you're looking at anything over probably what 15 mile an hour and you're going out beyond about three four hundred yards you're really starting to sort of on a small target like a fox or something or a rabbit or whatever you're shooting at um anything much beyond that you're going to you're going to struggle, you know, that wind's going to really knock you about. Yeah, I know. Jesus, did I struggle. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> and I think the wind for a while there was up around 20 to 22 kilometres an hour. And I was like, yeah, why am I even awesome. wasting my time doing this? You know, wasting ammo, putting yeah. you know money downrange, so to speak, on targets. But, you know, um, mate, do you have any last one or two questions to finish off? Do you have any, you know, pl- you were telling us a bit earlier, but do you have any planned purchases coming up over the next 12 months? Guns, scopes, any more equipment you're wanting to purchase? Oh, I mean, we keep, we keep uh, wanting to buy, don't we? I'm always looking for something to buy. I don't necessarily uh, but, need it, but, you know. <laughs> well, I hope I miss it I'm listening, but <laughs> 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 hopefully, hopefully she won't hear this. <laughs> exactly. Just don't um, tell her you've been on a podcast, whatever you do, unless you've already told her. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, I, do you know what? I've probably kind of got to that stage, really, where I've got the the – you know, I kind of got the gear that I uh, that I like to use, and I don't think I've got anything really that I'm really thinking about just yet. Um, no, nah, nothing springs to mind. There's probably a few things that have kind of tempted me, like the uh, like the Kestrel Elite. That's one thing that I'm still like, oh, maybe I'll get one of them. Um, and if I suddenly uh, get a lottery win or something, then probably one of them uh, DS scopes would would uh, would be a tempting purchase as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, but no, nothing nothing really sort of uh set in stone at the moment. I noticed when you were shooting a couple things your last video, your couple of fallow bucks in one of your recent videos, I thought, geez, they were getting hit hard with the two sixty, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, surprising. Um they they'll take a bit of uh, punishment, fallow bucks, even with a two sixty, they uh they yeah, they'll soak it up pretty well. They do. It's a, it's an interesting calibre, yeah. you know, something I really want to learn more. Even though I've got one, obviously, a 260, something I really want to learn more about, the you know, the ballistic coefficiency of the bullet. It's just, I mean, a great design, so I'll be keen to, you know, stretch it out over the next, say, one to two years and see what I can get out of it. But you know what I did, Mark? I totally neglected a major thing about the show, and that is... Bloody hell, if people want to find you, how do they find you on the social media? Like, Jesus, I'm talking about YouTube and we've spent more time talking about long-range shooting and hunting, which is fine, but this is the part of the show where you give you a bit of a spiel about 
you know, where people can find you on YouTube, what they can expect, where they can find you on all the social media outlets? Well, uh, well, basically, my uh, my YouTube channel is uh, 260, or the calibre, 260 Rips, R-I-P-S, um, which is obviously just my nickname, Ripley, so Rips. So the 260 Rips is the channel. Um, or if you just go on the uh, Google, I think, and just put Mark Ripley in long-range shooting, then um, you'll get stuff that comes up. Uh, I'll do a few bits as well for uh, another show here, um, The Shooting Show. Uh, which is um, a show which is um, run by um, uh, one of the magazines that I write for as well, uh, Sporting Rifle, that is. Um, I also write for another magazine here, Rifle Shooter. So I do monthly articles for those. Um, but, yeah, uh, that's pretty much that's pretty much it. Uh, I think I've already got uh, a bit of a fan base, I think, from Australia anyway. I get quite a few uh, guys there um, messaging me on uh, YouTube and that from Australia, so... It's amazing how how uh, how with YouTube and such like you can really reach out all around the world. I get people messing me from all over. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. I was talking to a lot of people when I'm <laughs> talking to them overseas, and I was like, you know, the one thing we've all got in common is we we sort of love hunting and shooting. It's pretty universal. And I remember when I saw your name, I thought two sixty rips, and it does the red R I P S. And at first, I thought, you know, because I guess the Australian. Uh, meaning of that would be like 260 rips means like rest in pieces, you know, generally what it means. And I yeah. thought, rest in pieces, because <laughs> yeah. it's red too. And I'm thinking, is that what he means? And then I saw your name was Mark Ripley, and I thought, rips, that makes total sense. Is it? Is it rest in pieces? Is it Ripley? Is it both? I didn't know <laughs> I didn't know which one it was, but I was thinking about it, you know? Yeah, yeah no, that's where it all came from. Let's be honest, that whole YouTube thing just sort of came off the back of, um, literally, I, I started doing it because I was filming – uh, my shots so I was kind of acting as my own spotter all I had was just a cheap camcorder with a good zoom on it and um, I was recording the shots so I could play it back and see where I missed that's how it started yeah. um, and then I got a few shots from that where I was hitting stuff at you know, 300, 400 yards and it kind of progressed from that and I showed a couple of mates and stuff like that and I got this, this rabbit at 400 yards or something I'm like wow you should put it on YouTube um, and there were only a few people at the time that were putting sort of Larmington kind of shooting and that on there. Um, I don't know if you remember uh, Cy Snipe was a guy that was on there. Uh, so slots a lot. I think he used to post ads and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And this guy was um, was doing some, some brilliant shots and stuff. And uh, I kind of started following sort of in his footsteps. And um, I just put some videos up purely just for, for other people's kind of amusement, really. You know, it was nothing, it was never going to be anything serious. And then it just went to a thousand subscribers, two thousand, and it's up to I don't know what's up to now, twenty eight thousand or so. So it's it's it sort of keeps jumping up and up and up. So um, yeah, and and uh, again with the um, the the magazine writing and stuff, it all kind of just came off the back of the uh, the YouTube stuff. Yeah. So it's um, it's amazing how it's all just kind of spiraled and got out of control. <laughs> yeah, it is difficult but, yeah. to. You know, even podcasting, making videos, and you did have a little bit of a, a a gap in between there as well, a gap in between videos. Any, what was a sort of rem, you know, reason for that? Just you know, probably had enough for a while, or trying to get out and no, be able I mean, to film I, it and shoot. Well, I I, I love um, I love sort of doing the videos and that, and I'd have no issues with um, with the filming and that. I'm out all the time anyway, so I'm always filming stuff. Um, the biggest thing I think really that caused a, a bit of a gap there was. Um, it was more the editing because uh, I do all the editing there just on, on, a, on a cheap laptop and it's um, full of video files and stuff and it's so slow 
I had to go on a major cull and just sort of clear loads of space on it to, to even get the thing to work. Um, so I'm kind of upgrading. So, yeah, there's a future purchase. Probably um, I'll buy a, an iMac or something and I can uh, then sort of hopefully sort of edit stuff a lot quicker and make it a bit uh, bit less painful. I was thinking one um, thing for you too. I mean, have you thought about getting on you know, Patreon and getting some support from people like so you can keep making videos? I mean, we I spoke to Johnny about this as well. I've spoken to other YouTubers from not just Australia but yourself, uh, people from overseas, South African guys, and trying to get some support there to throw a bit of money your way because you know, if you people support you on Patreon, you can throw a few bucks for ammunition, new equipment, new camera work, and I'm sure with almost 30,000 subscribers, Subscribers, if you got on Patreon and set up some tiers for people to be able to support you financially, I'm sure they would and they'd love that. And this is what I tell a lot of people when I talk about the editing involved and people doing videos. I know this is the the internet age of you know freebies and stuff like that and getting everything for free. But I mean, people like yourself, me, other YouTubers around the world really put a lot of effort into you know not only just filming the videos or recording podcasts. It's it's editing. It's hours worth of work for a lot of people's enjoyment. And if people can at least make some money back on some yeah computer equipment, some ammunition, you know, uh, some new equipment as it becomes available. To keep making content for YouTube, I think ultimately that's the best thing. I hate seeing, and I've seen it so many times, really good content creators starting it, and then after a year, two, three, three years, or four years with regular content, just you know, packing up shop and saying, "No, nah, it's not worth it anymore. I'm not really getting any support. It's a lot of time out of my life to be able to do this, and it's just not worth it." So, have you considered something like that, or? That's, yeah, I mean, that's something I definitely need to sort of look into. Um, uh, just another thing as well which has sort of caused a little bit of um, a delay between videos is that I've been spending a bit of time doing videos for other people um, I do a little bit for um, the night vision show we've got a company over here a big company that does uh, a lot of night vision products um, Scott Country International I don't know if you have any dealings with these guys I've heard of um, them yep, yep. yeah I mean they're, they're, they're quite big over here and uh, I've been doing a lot of work with them um, so I do a few bits for their, their um, channel on YouTube as well and also, uh, I've been doing videos for the shooting show um, again, and that generates some income for me to to do those. So I've kind of been putting a lot of effort into doing those, whereas I probably should have been spending the, the time doing some of my own stuff as well. But uh, I will definitely be putting out a few more videos in that um you know, from now on, because uh, I've also got um, a couple of more sponsors now onto the channel. So uh, I've just got Deer Hunter Clothing. Um, they've um, come on board as a sponsor now. So uh, I need to um, sort, of, sort of be putting out a video or TV sort of once a month to uh, just to keep them happy as well. So. That's right. And the guys, <laughs> if you, yeah, if you if you let us know at any time you're going to do something like that, I mean, I'm happy to put the word out for you. I mean, with 30,000 subscribers, I mean, even getting to say yeah, 30, 40 or 50, you know, two, three, four hundred dollars a month, I mean, is a big help when, you know, trying to get like a new laptop or something, if you're having problems with that and try and upgrade your equipment. I mean, you make good content. So, you know, people would want to get on there and support you and throw, I mean, I know we're all the same we don't like people asking people for money and stuff like that but I mean if they want the the, con- the content to stay around and make it worthwhile I mean throw some you know incentive that person's way I mean I just don't talk from my ass I mean I support about five people on Patreon because not only am I a content creator but also 
I love the content that these guys are putting out and, and yourself too. So if you get something like that, I'd re- recommend everyone jump on and, you know, throw Mark five, yeah, five dollars a month. And, 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 you know, that way he's got an incentive to make videos. And if he does, we need a new laptop. Well, then over a couple of months, you can buy a new laptop and have great, you know, something really fast that's going to be suitable for what you need. Yeah, certainly, certainly to look into. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll uh, check that out. All right, Mark, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, uh, sharing your knowledge uh, on long-range shooting, gear and equipment. So Mark Ripley joins me here on AHP from 260 Rips. Mark, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we can catch up again soon. Definitely. Thank you very much, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.